Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Today is truly a historic day. We have defied the odds. Am I proud? Yes, I'm very proud. This is a great success for Europe. Finally, we have managed... What's all that celebration about? Well, after years of bitter wrangling, impasses, and stalemates the EU reached a political breakthrough on migration and asylum rules. It's been seven years in the making. And in the final stretch, officials from the European Parliament, member states, and the Commission engaged in exhausting 48-hour last-ditch negotiations that finally produced an agreement. European countries have agreed on a migration deal that will see... The European Union announced a breakthrough agreement on new, tougher rules for migration. It came after overnight talks... So they struck a deal at the very end of last year as most people were heading off for the holidays. And because of that, there hasn't really been a lot of time to process and analyze the news and what it means in this election year, until now. I'm Sarah Wheaton, host of EU Confidential. In this episode, we're breaking down the new rules on migration. They're set to be a hot-button issue as Europeans head to the polls in June. How so? People arriving on Spanish shores or Greek or Italian islands will now face stricter border controls and detention. Their asylum claims will be processed much more quickly, in 12 weeks. And if they're denied refugee status, they'll be swiftly deported. In addition, other EU countries will now have to either agree to take in a certain number of migrants or... If they don't want to do that, they can pay 20,000 euros per person. To dig deeper into what the EU has agreed to do on this tricky issue, I'm joined in the studio with our senior diplomatic correspondent, Jacopo Barigazzi. Hi, Jacopo. Hi. And Catherine Willard. You are the director of the European Council on Refugees and Exiles. Thanks for having me. And so certainly you were very active ahead of the deal that was reached in December. And the previous seven years of um, discussion on the reforms. Presumably you had a good New Year's break, a much needed one. And so before we go into the practical consequences of this legislation, can you just tell us some of the main rules or solutions that were worked out? So in the political agreement that was reached in December, there's an agreement on the expanded use of border procedures. This means that more of the people are arriving to seek protection in Europe will be kept at the borders contained there and subject to what in our view are often second-rate asylum procedures that take place from detention centres. There's also on the positive side a solidarity mechanism introduced. What does that mean? So this is a way to help countries that are facing large numbers of arrivals of people seeking asylum and in fact solidarity can be offered in different ways. For us the most important way is relocation that people 
can be relocated from the member states where they arrive and transferred to other member states. So that reduces the responsibilities of those states at the border. So relocation is a good element, but solidarity can also be offered by paying a financial contribution, which is something that gained quite a lot of attention because in a way it may be an attempt by some states to buy their way out of solidarity. Mm -hmm. In practical measures, as far as what we saw, sort of the contours of the debate, it was sort of countries like Italy, like Greece saying, hey, our economies are not even that amazing. We can't handle all these people. Can you help us out here? Yes, I think we have a sometimes a paradoxical situation in the sense that although the numbers of people arriving are increasing, they're still manageable numbers. Europe can manage the numbers of people, but it has to do so in a collective way with a fair distribution of people across the continent. That has been attempted, but not really achieved. And you mentioned something else that another area of the status quo that this deal just didn't really touch. Can you walk us through that? So the Dublin regulation, the quite famous um, or infamous uh, piece of EU asylum law, says that the countries of first arrival are responsible for the asylum applications for simple matter of geographic chance, let's say, if they're at the external borders, then it's more likely that that's the first country where a person makes their asylum application. So for us, that's one of the weaknesses. And we fear that in practice, things might not change that much. The deal has been strongly criticised by you, by the NGOs, but at the same time we are facing European elections when the far right can actually make big gains. So would it have been better not to have such a deal? I think that's a very good question. There was a need for a European response to this and the sense that if the EU didn't manage to put something together, then it would be considered as a failure. I think our concern is with the content of this deal and the complexity of it. It's a set of laws that are almost Byzantine in their complexity and that are based on harsher and more restrictive treatment of people seeking protection. So there were other ways for the EU to respond. To give you an example, we've seen this very positive response to displacement from Ukraine. In fact, the reform goes in exactly the opposite direction. So to us, that is a concern because we don't expect it to solve the problem. Do you think that there is a regulation that can solve something as migration problem? The only thing you can do is to try to manage it. Yes, there are no solutions. I mean, the question of refugee movement has been an issue throughout all of human history and will continue to be so. So I think one of the many myths that prevail in this area of policy is the idea that this is a problem and we can solve it. Now, we understand that politicians are under pressure to solve problems. So this is why some like this happens. I think here we would be sceptical about the use of law as a way to solve what are inherently political problems, such as, for instance, the conflicts among the member states. And what we see is actually that this, in many ways, is quite bad law because it's not designed uh, to tackle legal challenges. Often, if I can ask another one, the EU ends up on the front page of newspapers across the world for pushbacks. Mm-hmm. And the pushback is when uh, the migrant uh, is not uh, allowed into the territory of a, a member state without the chance to actually uh, file for asylum claim. And this is uh, against international law. Do you think that with this deal, uh, the EU will get uh, more or less uh, bad headlines on the lack of respect of international law. Our concern from the beginning since the pact has been launched is that it actually may lead to an increase in pushbacks. 
The reform package increases the responsibility of the countries at the external borders and it requires them to put people into detention centres at the border and manage their asylum applications there. It looks very much like what's been happening in Greece on the Greek islands. The response may well be to actually deny access to territory, to engage in pushbacks because they don't want the responsibility of managing border procedures. As you say, pushbacks are violent denials of access to territory. We also see other similar practices, summary removals of people, people being kidnapped on territory and removed by the state and taken back out to countries beyond the EU's border. You know, it's really interesting as we're recording this just the other day, there were headlines from the country I'm from, the United States, about um, a mother and two children uh, drowning in the Rio Grande River um, trying to, to flee to the United States. This issue is inflaming political rhetoric and political enmity in the U.S. It was certainly a big factor in the Brexit vote. Now, as Jacopo noted, there was sort of this urgency to getting this legislation wrapped up ahead of the EU elections. Kind of philosophical question, but why is this such an intractable issue? And can we say that just everybody who wants to close the borders more is, is a selfish racist? Or are there sort of legitimate concerns here? No, it's a much more nuanced situation. And it is a challenge for many politicians because they promise things that can't be delivered. I think it's an issue that is easily exploited by populist forces. It's also an area of policy which I think is particularly prone to myths and irrationality. There are ways out of this. There are, I wouldn't call them solutions, but there are ways to better manage a situation. So, for instance, increasing safe routes, resettlement, for instance, humanitarian visas, student scholarship, also a way that refugees can, in a formal and organised way, come to Europe without having to embark on a dangerous journey in the hands of smugglers, but also without those images that provoke fear sometimes of people arriving by boat. This is something that I think is almost a, a sort of primordial reaction sometimes when people forced to flee arrive by sea. Those things can be avoided by putting in place alternatives. The other thing we should look at is myths about public opinion. Actually, I mean, I'm looking here at the statistics on attitudes. Attitudes towards immigration are actually improving across Europe. Positive attitudes are increasing. Negative attitudes are declining if we go back over 10, 15 years. We wouldn't know that from the public debate. And you also referred to some other myths and the narratives about migration. Can you just give us a few examples of what you have in mind? Yes. So there's um, multiple myths. Let us say, for instance, one is a set of myths that surround the idea of pull factors. The idea that the supposed generosity of Europe is what's drawing people here. There are 35 peer-reviewed academic studies from the last five years alone that debunk the pull factor myth pull factors don't exist. Why people leave is not a question of choice. It's to do with being forced out. The other side of that coin is the idea that harsh or indeed even inhumane treatment will stop people arriving and act as a deterrent. It doesn't. All that happens is that people continue to arrive to seek protection and they suffer. Um, a very prominent myth, and I'll, I'll end with that one, there's, there's of course many more, but a prominent one is that people arriving in Europe to seek protection 
do not have protection needs. That we often hear, oh, they're not refugees, they're not deserving, they're economic migrants. Actually, the statistics show that the majority of those arriving do have protection needs. If we look at the statistics, 2022, 49% of people who applied got a positive decision and they were recognised as being in need of protection. And then on appeal, 34% of the cases were also then granted protection at that level. These are quite high protection rates. That means that European countries have obligations to respond. From our perspective, the better thing to do is quickly make decisions allow people to work from the beginning and allow them to live a dignified and independent life. Really before you were mentioning the, the polls showing that uh, public opinion not in favour of restricting action, but at the same time it's also a fact that they are increasingly voting for the right. So here there is a push towards uh, far-right parties across Europe. Then my question is, uh, do you think that this uh, migration pact somehow reflect a shift towards the right at uh, a European uh, level. And if you agree, it would be so bad since that, again, people are increasingly voting for the right? So in some countries, there is an increased uh, voting share for the extreme right. In other countries, their voting share is declining. It's not to underestimate the damage that those parties do. Those parties live off the idea of uh, prejudice and hostility towards refugees and migrants. However, We also shouldn't suggest that their success is something so threatening. I think we then come to another aspect of your question, which is the response of other parties. If we look at what's happened, for instance, in the European Parliament over this mandate, the dynamic that has harshened EU asylum policy is the more extreme positioning of the centre-right. And the EPP group in this mandate compared to the last one, has a very different position. And it's one which has found it more often in alliance with the extreme right than putting together an alliance with the uh, centrist and centre-left parties. Broad question, given that there's been this shift in approach from pursuing integration to pushing people back, what's behind that? Again, I would say this varies because there is still an immense amount of work going on on inclusion. There are efforts to deny access and uh, prevent people from arriving, but there are at multiple levels, so local government level, city level, among civil society, but also in some cases central governments. Quite a lot of those who arrive will get a protection status and therefore their future is likely to be in Europe. There are only two or three countries which have what we might call an explicitly anti-integration policy. And it's one that is very much counterproductive to their own interests. We have a demographic crisis. We have labour market shortages. So a country that decides that it doesn't want to integrate people who have a protection status is one that is shooting itself in the foot. Denmark is a country which has an anti-integration policy. If we look at the trend also at EU level, there is a sense that the only way for Europe to manage this question is to prevent people from arriving at the borders and crossing the borders to seek protection. But unfortunately, it doesn't really work just because there are so many people displaced globally. Thanks to Jacopo and Catherine Woolard. After the break, we'll move on to the European elections to get a sense of just how big an issue migration is for voters in different countries and how the European far right is using it to make political gains. Stay with us. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So I'm here with Professor Florian Trauner, an immigration expert at the Flemish Free University of Brussels. You're actually planning an event in a few weeks called Migration and the European Elections, how to go beyond polarizing campaigns. What do you think the discussion is going to be there? It's going to be a, a difficult discussion because everybody expects that migration actually is a very polarizing topic. So you really have to, to think hard how to avoid it, how not to get into the trap of the far right that everything is linked to migration in a way and all other parties also just talk about migration. So I think that is a big challenge. But let's see what, what they will put forward there. Mm -hmm. And we are expecting this to be one of the big issues in the upcoming European Parliament elections. Eurobarometer actually just put out a survey in December that showed 28% of Europeans consider migration to be one of the two most important issues. That was up there with the war in Ukraine. And in that same survey, 75% of Europeans support strengthening external borders. Are you surprised by those figures? We live in very relatively uncertain times. I mean, we have a high inflation, we have rising living costs, we have the wars in the Middle East and, uh, and Ukraine. So people are anxious. And people are anxious. And then there are these parties who put the blame relatively systematically and for a very long time already on migrants. They are coming, they would take or they would bring down our living standards. They are to blame for rising costs. So in a way, it's not unsurprising. We see this also from research that the more people feel anxious, the more prone they are to listen to this kind of easy messages and that are put forward. So in a way, it's not unfortunately very surprising to see these numbers. And could you kind of take us through, uh, you know, we don't want to go country by country through all the EU 27, but would it be fair to say that where far right parties are expecting electoral gains in places like Germany, France, your native Austria, Italy, the Netherlands, um, that migration issues could play a significant role? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the current polls, the far right is really doing pretty well. In Germany, they are ranging at around 22%. For instance, Chancellor Scholz, Social Democrats, they are just at 13%. So there's really a big gap. In Austria, the same. We can see that the Freedom Party has been polling first for really many months already. So in these northwestern European states, the far right has really high numbers at the moment. In Central Eastern European, also traditionally, there hasn't been that's much of a polarization, but with recent populist governments, let's think of Viktor Orban and Fidesz Party, we can see that this issue has become relatively prominent. In Southern Europe, we have traditionally seen a bit less of polarization. Spain was one of the few countries where you could really see that migration is not such a polarized issue. 
in Southern Europe in general, you could see that there have been countries of emigration until recently, and they have had traditionally very strong left parties. So this contributed to a bit of a less polarization. But then we saw with the economic crisis and the transformation into countries of first arrivals that the far right has gained ground there too. So we can expect almost in all countries in Europe right now that migration is a really important electoral issue. It's interesting that you said that Spain, you know, which is a frontline country, hasn't historically had as much polarization. So are people's views, are they all just driven by political rhetoric or to what extent is sort of lived experience also also creating people's perception and, and sort of sentiments about migration? What you see reminds me of the French sociologist Vincent Tiberi. I mean, he, he made the statement for the French society, but I think it's applicable for other European states too. So what he said is that we are living in a kind of a paradoxical time because the generations right now, they're getting actually more open for migration and less racist, more tolerant. And at the same time, the far right is increasing or is gaining ground more and more. Post-World War II, in the tickets after post-World War II, we saw actually that uh, also from I mean, from studies that the societies are much less tolerant, more racist, but the far right didn't get off the ground. So what was the reasons? And the reasons he put forward is really that people right now, they start to vote less for socioeconomic issues, such as you know, to get welfare support, and more for cultural issues, integration, multiculturalism, and this kind of things. What is really happening, and what is important as well for mainstream party to counter the far right in societies general is really to mobilize younger people who tend to vote less than older generations who vote more for far right. And then as well, to put the campaigns and the debates a bit away from cultural issues alone and more towards the socioeconomic domains, economic issues more broadly. So it sounds like what you're saying is there's not a great message to just actually change people's sentiment about migration. It's better to get people to care more about something different. I mean, if you talk really about migration as such, the best strategy is always to link it to other values or things that are really of interest for people. Demography, labor market shortages. I mean, people still want to go to a restaurant and be able to have someone take their order. This kind of issues. And there people understand that we need people who are motivated, who may have a foreign background, but can still be of, of real value added for our societies. So this kind of debates bring it to the lives of the people, link it to core values, to benefits, that's a way uh, of talking about migration and then bring in numbers, bring in really facts. We saw in, in studies that people, for instance, believe far higher numbers of foreigners in societies than we actually have. So there is a lot of misconceptions as well. And this is important to bring in a proper and correct framework. We talked about misconceptions a bit with our previous guest. Could you give us some examples of some talking points that you're hearing from parties around Europe as we head towards the elections? I mean, what we hear from the far right across Europe right now is, is a really strong focus on deportation and getting rid of foreigners. And there was a, a big story in Germany right now with the AfD who asked, for instance, there should be mass deportations of any foreigners, even those who have acquired the German citizenships already. So that is something that the far right is putting very much to the forefront right now. In other mainstream parties, what definitely we can expect is that they highlight the pact on migration and, and asylum and say, look, we understand this is a challenge Europeans care about. We will be able to come up with solutions that work on the ground. So I think that's a bit also the electoral campaign that we can expect. The far right 
asking a complete stop from migration and mainstream parties say, look, we have ways and we know how to better manage migration. I think that's a big difference already. So I'm glad you brought up the pact. Manfred Weber, he's the European People's Party leader, the center-right leader. He has really praised this deal. And his rationale is that countries need to prove that they can manage migration by reducing arrivals. And if they can't do that, then, you know, that's really going to contribute to a far-right surge in the EU elections. So at this point, it is up to individual countries, individual governments to deliver. So, you know, do you think that the perceptions on the ground are really going to change ahead of the EU elections? I mean, what you say is that it's up to individual governments to deliver. And in a way, that's really the widespread perceptions. It's up to the government. But that shouldn't be the case because it's a European system. It's a common European asylum system and everybody should work together. But de facto, this was not the case. De facto, it was indeed up to individual member states to see what they can do in the migration field. And what did they do in the past? They made very tough, restrictive measures somehow in the national context to reduce migrants and also incentivize migrants to go to the neighboring states. So there was really a kind of a downward spiral and the rules at the European Union level, they were taken relatively lightly, if not sometimes openly neglected. So one can agree with Manfred Weber that it's the hope is that the back changes this dynamic among member states too, and that they, they find up together a bit of a better solution so that it's really a kind of a feeling that the EU as a whole can actually come together and that the member states' governments don't you know, act against the neighbors, but in uh, cooperation with the neighbors to manage migration. So I hate to do this, but what is your prediction for the EU elections? Do you think we're going to see this far right surge that some polls have suggested? I think there is quite some probability that we see such a, a surge. I think it's important for other parties to not go into the trap of the far right and only talk about migration. I mean, from everything, what we know is that if the issues are very prone to the far-right agenda, the other parties are losing out. So it's better to, for other parties to try to get other issues, inflation, economic issues, more to the forefront. If they succeed, then the search may still be uh, less relevant than what the, the polls currently suggest. But, I mean, there is some reason to believe that the far-right actually will do not so badly this election. Yeah. And just broadly, what is your take on the EU migration deal? Do you think it will actually achieve its goals? And with the migration deal, the EU as a whole has definitely made a move towards the more restrictive side. So they have really thought to bring down the numbers, introduced some very controversial measures. I mean, fast track border procedures, more and longer detention, also a strong focus on return. There should a lot of things happen on the border directly. You know, migrants should be received there. They should be treated in, in quick procedures. So I think, you know, there's a lot of hope and there is a risk of a certain overburdening, overburdening of the states, overburdening of the reception centers, overburdening in terms of compliance with human rights. So there's a risk that the whole system is not working out as it's supposed to be. But at the same time, I mean, we have seen seven years of negotiations. I still think that having kind of an agreement will at least avoid polarization and very toxic negotiations in the next mandate, the next years. Professor Chaner, thank you so much for braving the Brussels blizzard to join us here in the studio today. Thanks for having me. And that's it for today. Remember to follow EU Confidential on your favorite app so that you never miss an episode. And we love to receive your emails and feedback or ideas for guests and topics. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. 
I'm Sarah Wheaton. Thanks to our senior audio producer, Deanna Sturis, and our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez. See you next week.